Welcome to Sunburnt Country Music, interviews with Australian country music artists. My name is Sophie and I have been interviewing Australian country music artists for over a decade and I still love it. I love their stories, I love their insights and I love their music. So I hope you enjoy hearing from them on this podcast. Mark Muldray is a singer-songwriter from northern New South Wales. He fronted four-piece Hitchcock's Regret for a seven-year period and recorded his first solo release in 2009. His latest album is Nambucca Fables, which combines melodic Americana and indie pop rock. And that's just a really short summary of what it is because it is like this epic, magical, layered piece of work that I've listened to many, many times and I intend to listen to many more times. Hello, Mark. G'day, Sophie. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. We're going to talk about this album, which is really thoughtful and thought-provoking, but I'm going to start by saying that the album is named after named for Nambucca Heads, which is where your late mother grew up, and yeah. the album was written after her death. But I'm wondering about your personal experiences of Nambucca Heads and what your memories are. Family holidays, mostly. Right. So, yeah, that my grandparents stayed in Nambucca Heads and... As a kid, we'd have our yearly holiday, which would, you know, generally be to go and visit the grandparents. So most of my memories of Nambucca Heads of mum with her parents and the, the little, you know, they had some chooks in the backyard and they had a loud screeching, swearing cockatoo in the back garden. And I've just got little fragments of memories that, that, um, that I guess, you know, when I was writing the record that I started trying to remember. It's funny, memories that far back. Mm-hmm. They um they don't they don't stick the way you think they maybe have and when you start trying to chase them, you know you realize they're actually probably pretty hard to gather sometimes. So yeah, I've got lots of memories, but they're weird. They're like tiny little things, you know the the smell of the of bread in the kitchen or 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 their their kitchen dresser or the big table that they had because they had a family of ten kids. Right. You know, so it's just kind of little fragments that I sort of had to had to piece together. And did you feel that uh, your mother's upbringing there had been so significant in terms of shaping her as a person that that's that was the reason to go back to that place, or it was more just in honor of her that it was Nambucca Fables? A few little things happened. I mean, one thing is, Mum left Nambucca Heads when she was really young. She left when she was about fifteen because she was looking to go to the city. She didn't like living in the country, and they were poor. You know, and I think there was part of it was that mum wanted to escape um, her upbringing almost, mm-hmm. go and start a, a fresh life in the city. The other reason was when mum was in hospital and she was, you know, they were, they, they were pumped her full of morphine and drugs and things, she started to talk a lot about her history. Right. And uh, lots of stories that I hadn't heard before and mum talked, there was one particular night, it was about two in the morning, and she just started telling me almost her whole history right up to meeting my dad. Wow. And, I, you know, we, we, in my family, we hadn't really talked about that stuff much. You know, yeah. it, was, um, it was great for me to hear lots of stories from mum. I think that was maybe the catalyst for starting to think about Nambucca Heads. It was that probably that night. Right. Um, and I suppose that was bittersweet as well, that the reason why all that got unlocked unlocked was morphine and, and that's a disinhibitor for people. Um, so all of those stories that your mother had locked inside her for all those years. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I was lucky when mum, when mum passed away, I found in mum's drawers, we were going through all her belongings with, with my dad, and we actually found four, I think, four sheets of paper 
And on the four sheets of paper, mum had written like bullet points of memories from her childhood. And not it wasn't something she'd done recently. She'd done it maybe five or six years before, mm-hmm. um, maybe even more than that. I think it was like mum not wanting to forget little things about her childhood. Right. And it was, it was like really bizarre little things like remembering um, going to the local corner store and waiting while they cut the potatoes to make the chips, to make the hot chips. And just the night that they turned the street lights on in, um, in Nambucca Heads for the first time after installing them in her street. Um, you know, little places where they used to play as kids and throwing jaffers in the, in the movie theatre and all, all of those sort of stories. So those little kind of four pages was just two-liners. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was kind of great. That, that and the night of talking with mum became all the beginning of the ideas for the songs, I think. So she was obviously a recorder of detail just in keeping those, those bullet-pointed lists. And in these songs, you have a lot of detail. That's part of what makes the song so rich for the listener. So I'm wondering if she taught you to pay attention to details. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I've probably always been a little bit like that. And I, I've always kept little journals and diaries and written things down. And I'm pretty sentimental when it comes to keeping stuff, as we were talking about before we started, you know, yeah. just records and CDs and books and, and magazines and stuff that I just can't, I, I'm a bit of a mad collector, not like a hoarder. I still, I still get rid of stuff when I feel like I've got no purpose for it anymore. But if there's any kind of sentiment attached to something, mm-hmm. I find it really hard, you know, and I, I do end up, yeah, collecting stuff. So therefore I'm wondering in your process of, of choosing which memories to record on this album, because as you said, your mother told you a lot, she had those recorded, you had your own memories of Nambucca Heads. I'm wondering how you went about selecting just the, just the right stories to tell for the album. That was hard. I mean, I did go through those notes of mums and I did, I did um, pick particular lines that stood out to me. Like there was a, in this, there's a song on there called, um, I saw you last night. And that starts with the line about the, the 1958 when the streetlights all came on. Yeah. You know, so I there were things that really jumped out at me. I kind of, I, there was a lot more that I wanted to get in there. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it, I, I think, was also based around my thoughts and feelings and dreams that I'd had at the time and everything. And I, I know I didn't want to get too direct with the storytelling because probably because I think I'm not very good at it. There are some people who are really good at being storytellers and telling a story from start to finish, mm-hmm. whereas I think maybe I tended to do it in more of a dreamy kind of way. So there were lines that stood out to me and then I started, you know, working out where things were going to go because mm-hmm. um, I didn't want to be too direct, I guess. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to make it too sentimental or too straight ahead or too much of a guy just kind of you know, writing a Hallmark card. I was I was concerned that that's how it would come out. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it took me a long time to get past that. Well, that particular song is the one that's haunting me at the moment in a good way, <laughs> but it's, um, it does, yeah, it, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I will also say um, when you said that you don't think you're a very good storyteller, I'm wondering if that's, you just mean the sort of traditional arc of beginning, middle and end as opposed to maybe delivering the story in the middle Yep. And paying the reader the compliment of being able to figure out the beginning and the end. Okay. Well, th- I mean, that that I love, you know, and that's, I guess that's how I am with movies and books and all kinds of things. There's an author that I really love. Um, I never know how to say his name. Ishiro Kishima. It's gone. Ishiguro? 
Yeah, the guy who wrote Remains of the Day. Yes. Yeah. Ishiguro, I yeah. think. Um, he does that a lot, you know, where it's so dreamy that you almost don't know, is this the end? Is this the beginning? Am I lost in... I kind of really enjoy that and, and maybe not knowing where I am in the story sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Remains of the Day was like that and so was Never Let Me Go, if you've read that one yeah, of you. Yeah, and there's one called The Unconsoled. And that one from start to finish is just like a dream. You actually never know where you are or even what period of time in the whole story. So I kind of I kind of like that. Yeah. I quite like his writing as well. I actually had trouble with the unconsoled, but I'm digressing here. We will stay back on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, did the album start as a way of exploring grief or managing grief? Managing. Yeah. I think I... I I really, really struggled writing at first, and I because I knew why I was doing it. I knew I was getting stuff out, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I think at the time I was saying to everyone, oh, "I've got really bad writer's block." I don't think I actually did. I think it was more a process that I had to get through to get to what I the way I actually wanted to write. And I was managing. I, I was writing at this desk a lot of the time, and like nothing good was coming out at all. I just felt like I was writing garbage on the page and I'd read it and hate it and I I think I called that writer's block but I was writing lots it was just that I didn't like anything that I wrote so I ended up getting out of this room and writing in other places and then I found that it started to come much easier and I actually had kept I'd almost written like after mum passed I I wrote letters Mm -hmm. like I was writing to mum and I think I had to get through all of that first because you're processing so much of your own feelings and I was getting so much down on paper, but it wasn't the way I wanted to, it wasn't things that I wanted to put into songs. Right. So I had to get all of that out on paper first before I felt like I could start creating something that I felt like was a direction that I wanted to go lyrically. And it sounds like that's not a process you've been used to in the past with songwriting, that you've had to write stuff out essentially. No, no, it had not. A little bit at the end of my last record, maybe I, I started to struggle a little bit, but before that, it would come really easy. Right. Um, you know, this time it was really hard. And I love, there was only one song that, bro- that was the song that broke the, um, the dam, which was called Every Waking Hour. And that was the first song where I actually felt like everything, you know, it's, it's really rare when this happens, but I almost wrote the whole song in one go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried on purpose to write in a much more conversational manner than I'd written before. Right. That song felt really that song felt really good to write. And I think after that, I really went, okay, I know where I'm I know where I'm going now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there any songs that didn't make it onto the album? Uh, yeah, there was one that we actually recorded completely. Um, it was called Absolution. Um, not be, and it didn't make it, it's not that it made, when it it's not that I didn't like it. It just didn't, I couldn't find a spot to put it. Right. Um, we are going to release, I'm doing a single, uh, another single next off from the album next month mm-hmm. and we're releasing that song with it as a B-side. So it'll still, it'll still make it out there. But there were other songs in my notebooks, right. yeah, which are still sort of filled with bits and pieces that didn't make it even to the band's members' ears right. that I just ended up keeping to myself. Yeah. And in the past with songwriting, have you been a self-editor like that where you've produced more than you need and then made the decision when it came to recording to not record some of them? 
not, not very often because I, you know, I think when I start writing, I'm thinking I'm writing for an album and I kind of, I don't just keep writing all the time. It's, I usually start thinking, okay, I'm going to begin the next record. And I start writing knowing that by the time I get to maybe 11 or 12, I'm done. Right. Um, and I find it takes a lot out of me when I do it. And I'm usually kind of a bit relieved when, when I'm finished. Yeah. So I don't tend to keep going. No, I just sort of go, okay, I've got the songs I like, I'm finished. Well, given that you read fiction, maybe it's not unlike writing a novel and that you have that that story or the theme or whatever it is for that album in mind and you set out to construct it and then once it's the end, it's the end. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably the case, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, Joan Didion famously wrote about grief as magical thinking and there is a sense of that on this album, I think, Um but I'm wondering if you felt like creating the album actually helped you anchor yourself in the here and now, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think it, I think it probably did. Um, the magical thinking part of it for me, I think a lot of it came from from dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, so often the the dreams become the the inspiration, kind of tied up with all of Mum's memories and everything. But the dreams become sort of the triggers sometimes. But, yeah, I think it did anchor me in the here and it helped me get through whatever, you know, that whole process, which anybody who's kind of dealt with grief knows that it doesn't happen, dealing with it doesn't happen very quickly, you know, and even after years you still, you can still be really having a hard time or a struggle, you know, and I I think it did help ground me, it helped me get through where I'm able to talk about things now, whereas before I I couldn't, you know, and I was worried about that when the album came out, am I going to be able to discuss this stuff, mm-hmm. you know? but I think it has it has helped in a, in a in a in a big way for me. And grief is also a very intense physical process. So I'm wondering if you notice if your voice changed at all. I think my voice is getting lower. Right. Yeah, but not 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 that I not that I'd noticed. No. Yeah, but I, th- I have noticed my voice is getting lower. I'm probably losing notes off my range. Whether that's got to do with the grief or not, I don't know. I just, the last two records I've done, I've, I've sung lower than I had on records before that. That could just be getting old. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's just the notes you're writing. Maybe you're not <laughs> writing those top notes for yourself anymore. True. <laughs> um, but now there are, each of these songs has, has musical layers to them and different elements. And I'm wondering if you work from instinct in, in thinking about what instruments you're going to use in the song and how, or if you actually start recording, try a few things and then shift direction if it's not working. One of the things that I think I'm really lucky with is I've got a band of my band. I've known those guys for a really long time and we've all got the same musical ear. We all understand each other. Um, One of the things I think, because too, I tend to write in in a way that maybe people term as jumping around from genre to genre. um, The band is what kind of usually pulls it together. I did hear some sounds this time you know, I, I was imagining the record was going to be a little bit different to my last two. But once I started playing them with the band, I let the guys kind of find their way. I don't have really structured like you're going to do this, here's the bass line, this is how it's going to go. Um, I let them find their way. And I think that's almost what makes it work because I think if I dictated too much, I think the spirit that those guys put into the music would somehow be lost and it would become a bit flat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I kind of really enjoy not going, hey, I really, this is what I hear, these are the instruments that I hear. I love kind of, I'm a big second guesser as well. 
<laughs> I'm always second guessing myself. So it's nice to have some guys who are around me who we've all got the same kind of taste of musical ear and we all, and, and they'll say, nah, that, I don't reckon that works. And I usually just end up going with it. Yeah. Right. So I kind of enjoy that. And uh, one of the people involved in this album is your longtime collaborator, Jamie Hutchings, whom some people may know from Blue Bottle Kiss. Um, and from what I understand, you were childhood friends. And what I'm wondering is, was music part of that childhood friendship? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We, we all started playing music. Scott, Jamie's brother, Scott, is also in the band. He plays drums. <laughs> and I've known those guys since I was about five. And one of our first, if you can call it a musical experience, we... We were all pretty big Beatle nuts when we were little kids, and we used to we used to put on concerts for our parents, sort of singing into vacuum cleaners with tennis rackets, and charge them to come and watch us play. You know, stick a bit of cellophane on the light bulb, and <laughs> um, and we 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 sort of did that a lot. We probably did that up to about age ten. We were still putting on these concerts for our parents. By the time we were old enough to start buying and playing our own instruments, we, we were in a band together and making a racket playing um, lots of cover versions. And then we had a little band called The Fallen Scarecrows where we actually started writing our own songs. And by that time, probably about 16 to 18 years old. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, pretty long, pretty long musical heritage. Plus their dad was probably the person who inspired me to get into jazz. Their dad's a, a saxophone player, flute player, oboe player, piccolo player. He worked on the midday show for decades. Um, and he's played with everyone from Sinatra to George Benson. Right. Um, so there was a lot of music in their house. You know, you imagine him sort of standing in the corner trying to practice his arpeggios and, you know, Scott and Jamie are blasting out the celibate rifles on the other side. It was, um, there was a lot of music there and it was great. We yeah. loved it. Um, so have you and Jamie ever had musical disagreements or has your taste always coincided? No, I'd say Jamie will probably say we've had musical, like, you know, it hasn't always coincided, no. <laughs> I, I probably sometimes sit on the softer side of the fence. Right. Yeah, Jamie tends to love music that's more abrasive maybe than I would listen to sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. So between the two, we, you know, we, we probably come up with something, especially when we're making my music that I really start to enjoy because there are elements of abrasive music that I really, really love. Mm-hmm. And I think there's elements of softer music that Jamie really loves as well. And Jamie's come around since he, as he's aged. So, <laughs> But how lovely for you both to have such a long-time collaboration, not just a friendship but a collaboration. Yeah, we, uh, we all got to go to France together as well, which was one of the greatest trips I've ever had where we went and played a, a festival over there and a couple of other shows. And to all go as childhood friends, the bass player in my band also was married to Jamie's sister Sophie. Right. So, you know, we've all known each other such a long time. Adam, who's the slide banjo player, I worked with him in a music store, oh, man, 20 years ago. So I've known him a really long time too. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's an easy band to be in. Well, and I would, you know, I imagine they, you know, they would think that you're providing songs for them that are great for them to work with. So it is, it's an all parts collaboration. For yeah. Them. We're all we're all in it. We're all having a good time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and those songs are very much about something. You know, they're about experiences, about places, about people. I think about being human. I'm wondering if you've always been interested in that kind of music as a listener. Yeah, prob- probably. 
Um, you know, I, I've always been a, a listener who's more tuned into lyrics than I am to the music, I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I'm really drawn to, to good lyricists, but more than anything, probably more than anything else. And that's probably where sometimes me and Jamie go separate ways because, you know, that's I, I'm listening a lot to the words. He, actually, he does as well. I shouldn't say that because he'll, he'll tell me off later. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I am listening to lyrics and probably an emp- empathetic, you know, empathetic listener. You know, so yeah, I am looking for that that kind of side of human nature and and feeling like I'm getting to know somebody maybe through their lyrical content. Mm-hmm. I like it when singer songwriters are personal, or you know, I know I know it's become the thing of someone crying in their beer at the bar, but I've always kind of found it brave mm-hmm. to be open about you know feelings and things like that in song, and to be able to stand in front of a room and sing it. Mm. And I also think it's still quite rare to explore grief um, through songs, even though it is a universal experience and there have been so many songs written um, for you to have an album that, that does explore it, but which is ultimately uplifting, I think, and, and uh, respectful of life, which sounds a bit mundane. That's not how I meant it. And joyous, I think, is also a correct word. Um, so, yeah, that's more a comment than a question. But I'm wondering actually now if if you have heard many songs that reflect your experience of grief or is that why part of why you wanted to write the album yeah I when I started writing it I almost I I actually went and did a bit of research to work out who had written Mm. songs based on grief there aren't there aren't you're right there aren't that many Mm. and it made me wonder am I doing the wrong thing you know do people want to hear this is this gonna is anyone gonna get it except me or my family members or you know only people who know me I, I did wonder about that, and I did do some research. There's a, I think there's a Sufjan Stevens album called mm-hmm. Carrie and Lowell. I think it's about his mum and dad. I can't, I can't. I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of his, but I remember coming across something where it was like I think he'd written some stories about his mum and dad. Someone who's done it well is the is um, Mark Ol- Oliver Everett from the Eels. I think it's Mark Oliver Everett. E, he just Mister E, they call him anyway. Um, he's written some very, very. Um, you know, direct and almost hard to listen, hard to listen to um, songs based on the difficulties that he had sort of growing up and in childhood and with loss and all of those kind of things. Mm. There wasn't a lot. And the only one that I can think of is actually Amber Lawrence's recent song, You Were Mine, which is about losing a child. And I remember listening to it thinking, I have never heard a song like this, like with this much naked grief on it. But I think because it's hard, you know, it's hard. What you've done is is hard work. It's hard on the soul. It's I'm sure it was hard physically to write those songs. And now that they're out in the world, does it feel does it feel like that's an experience shared, or are people giving you feedback that it's helped them at all? Yeah, they I have, they have actually. I've had quite a few messages. I I did a I did a clip for one of the songs called New Suit, and I actually stuck my dad in the end of it. Mm. Um, He's just sort of sitting in front of our family home playing a piano accordion as the car's going past. And then I get out of the car and sit next to him and we're having a chat. That's kind of how the video ends. But it seemed to hit the mark with a lot of people. I, I kind of thought it's no, no one's going to get that. No one's going to even understand the reference. But I got a lot of messages from people who had experienced loss of their own parents or had experienced grief. And I've... Some of them were people that I talked to even while I was making the record. Um, 
who, who even kind of helped me <laughs> work out how to how to get my thoughts into focus and all of that kind of stuff. But I did get messages from people who said that they were really moved by by the record when they listened. I had a, I had one guy message me who said he had memories of Nambucca Heads, and he he sat down because he he had some history there himself and he didn't know me at all. We've never, we've never met in person, but he said he sat down with a glass of wine and by the time the record finished, he was in tears. Mm. So somehow it's, it's, it's hitting a mark, I think. And I, mm. I, I hope so. Cause you know, I, I was worried that people weren't going to get it. I think it definitely hits a mark um, and it will no doubt for the audiences at your album launch shows that are coming up. There is one at the golden barley in Sydney which has long had a history of live music, and also at the Lincoln Pin in Woi Woi. Have you played either of those venues before? I'm guessing you have. You haven't. I no. thought you must have played the Golden Valley in particular. There you go. No, no, they're both new venues to me. Right. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. I haven't, like, I live on the Central Coast, which is why we're playing at the Lincoln Pin. Right. Um, and I haven't played there before either. I've been there, but I haven't, I haven't played there. So, yeah, looking forward to both of those. Yeah, the Lincoln Pin's been doing a very good job with the live music. So, well, we needed it on the coast. There was no once we, we had Lazots here at one point where I played a lot. Might have played there like fifty times, but it's once that left, there wasn't many places for someone like me singing folk songs and stuff to go and play. Mm-hmm. So it's it's good to have somewhere that we can I can go and take the band and yeah launch the record. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have just been Sydney. <laughs> well i will put the dates um with the interview and it's been fantastic to talk to you about this wonderful album i'm so glad that people are giving you feedback that it's hitting the mark because it certainly has for me mark it's been wonderful to talk to you thanks a lot for your time thank you Sophie. really appreciate it thanks for listening to the sunburnt country music podcast for more australian country music interviews and reviews and other things go to sunburntcountrymusic.com or to Sunburnt Country Music on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok.